Welcome to the new school. Our guest today is Mark Gerzon, and our subject is decision-making as if consciousness matters. Uh, Mark uh, and his partner, Rachel Kessler, who's also here today, uh, are friends of 40 years, um, and Mark and Rachel and I worked together on the Carnegie Council on Children at Yale University in the early 1970s. So we have kept track of each other ever since, and uh, Mark and Rachel have both brought quite a number of conferences and seminars to Commonweal over the years. In addition to that, Rachel's work, which I just mentioned, and Mark's work coincide in very interesting ways. Rachel's work at PassageWorks, uh, her nonprofit center, has focused on social and emotional learning. So, uh, uh, and Mark's work on consciousness and decision making um, is very closely connected to that. I'm going to spend a few minutes going over Mark's um, biography because I don't usually do this, but it's so rich that it will really give you a sense of the kind of work Mark has done in the, in the 40 years since we were together at Yale. From 2007 to the present, he's been a distinguished fellow at the East-West Institute, co-designing with private and public sector partners a state-of-the-art decision-making environment called the Global Leadership Lab. He has facilitated dialogues between the International Committee of the Chinese Communist Party and the leaders of the Democratic and Republican parties. He has hosted a network of the leading global policy think tanks, the Global Leadership Consortium, to develop cross-boundary leaders that can work together on key global security issues, and has been convening leading grassroots peacemakers from around the world to build a global learning network called the Conflict Transformation Collaborative and has partnered with the United Nations to initiate a global network of conflict transformation practitioners. He's the author of a number of books. I have three of them here. Leadership is Global, A House Divided, and Leading Beyond Borders, but most recently of Leading Through Conflict, which was published by the Harvard Business School Press in partnership with JFK School of Government, uh, which synthesizes the field of mediation and conflict resolution for leaders in the public and private sectors. He's also, since 1994, uh, president of Global Mediators Associates, uh, which has provided uh, to corporations and public bodies, the U.S. Congress, international agencies, trainings in leadership, multi-stakeholder problem-solving, and other leadership issues. So there's a huge list of clients that include the Young Presidents Organization, the Chamber of Commerce, the United Nations uh, Development Program, UNICEF, uh, Kennedy School of Government, Faith and Politics Institute, the Environmental Protection Agency, religious organizations across the board, Council on Foundations, and so on. Um, and um, there have you, been you many... You better stop soon because I'm starting to feel very tired. Yeah, okay. Well, you, you hold on, Mark. I'm going to make you tired, but this is relevant. There are, many, um, there are many concrete fruits of all of this. So, for example, 
uh, Arms Watch, now, now known as the Arms Project under the auspices of the Human Rights Watch, came out of uh, Mark's work with Peter Goldmark of Rockefeller uh, Foundation on this stuff. Um, uh, you can divide Mark's work, uh, we were talking about this before we began, into three kinds of pieces. Uh, a decade spent on grassroots community organizing, a decade spent on national conflict issues, and, uh, and a decade spent on international issues. And, of course, they all overlap. Shortly after we were together on the Carnegie Council on Children, Mark became the managing editor of World Paper, a global newspaper based in Boston that identified uh, a team of associate editors around the world and reached a circulation of more than a million in five languages. So forgive me for taking all that time, but I just wanted to give you a sense. You know, Parker Palmer, the great Quaker activist that some of you know about, has a wonderful phrase that he calls standing in the tragic gap. And what he means by that is that when you look at the reality of what's going on in the world, it's possible to be uh, so idealistic about how things should be that you make yourself irrelevant to real change in the real world. It's also possible to be so accepting of how things are that you become a fatalist or a cynic about things. And what Parker Palmer talks about is standing in the tragic gap. That is, that place where your heart is broken by the difference between how things are and how the world could be, and yet you're willing to stand there in the center and stay relevant uh, to what's actually happening. And I know very few people who have managed to stand in the tragic gap the way Mark does and hold the ideals that many of us at the New School share, but at the same time leverage them into working effectively with the U.S. Congress, with the United Nations, with the Communist Party of China, and so forth. So I just wanted, Mark, despite your fatigue and, and uh, <laughs> sleepiness, to uh, take that time because it, it affects it. how people will hear the conversation. Thank you. So, Mark, would that, you start... I ended up getting yeah. tears in my eyes when you said to talk about tra- standing in the tragic gap because, you know, it's a... It was very wonderful the way you spoke about it, but it was also made me feel sad, you know, because that's what it is. So I have a lot of feelings while you introduced me. I'm not used to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, if you would start with a few slides, and we'll be talking through the slides so that our listening audience will be able to follow. Well, I'd just like to frame the topic of conversation today. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I'm going to look at Michael, so for those of you over here, I'm sorry I'm not looking at you, but I, I'm having a conversation so anybody wants to move their chair over. <laughs> um, we can sort of look both ways. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, look both ways. Uh, well, the conversation today really, the thing that really interests me after all that, all that stuff Michael talked about, um, you know, it's, I've just turned 60, and I'm, I'm trying to synthesize all that. Um, even when somebody doesn't read it out loud in front of 30 people, you know, it's, I'm trying to, in my own heart, synthesize what's all that about. And, and where I've come out is the kind of the title of our conversation today, which is, I'm really concerned that we're making decisions in ways that don't work. And um, that we're making decisions at the same level of awareness that created the problems. And I work with people at all those levels, community, national, global, 
I see that happening, and, and I'm just asking the question, and I'm inviting you all to ask it with us today, which is, what do we know about shifting the level of awareness with which we make decisions? What do we know? And that's the part that might get a little participatory. Whereas, you know, if you were to design an optimal... Can you go back to the previous PowerPoint, previous image? If you were to design a place and a process to raise the level of awareness through which humanity addresses its common problems. If you were, right now, designing it, somebody said, here's, you know, X amount of money, design it. Take a minute with a, your notebook, if you have one, or just not just your inside, and say, well, well what, how would you design it? How would you build it? What would be in it? What, how would, what would be the features of something, from based on your lives, because most of us here are of a certain age, um, based on your experience, when you said, oh, that was a really good decision-making process. I was very impressed with that. Well, why, was it, why was it so good? What was the quality of that, that space or that environment or that facilitation or that technical support or whatever it was that made that meeting or that conference or that decision-making process good? What was it? And so just take a minute and check in with yourself. And if, if you want to say just raise your hand or not raise your hand, just blurt out and say a phrase a phrase or a sentence, what, what, what was it that made it so good? Quality of connection and trust between the people involved that enables them to harvest the collective wisdom. Yeah, so trust that enables us to harvest collective <coughs> wisdom. Beautiful. What else? What, what else? Inclusion of your authentic nature. Inclusion of your authentic nature. What else? Equal gender balance. Gender balance. Representative diversity. Respectful listening. Respectful listening. Um. I guess this relates to what you said, but um, going within in a silent way. So silence. Silence, collective silence, mm-hmm. inner presence of the life. Uh, right. Sitting at the table of unknowing together. Sitting at the table of unknowing, letting yourself say, I don't know, mm-hmm. don't know, mm-hmm. living into that. What else? Checking in with the quiet people that haven't spoken. Yeah, inclusion, participation. I think seeing uh, where the problem has come from and related to how it's related to our nature and who we really are instead mm-hmm. of trying to live up to ideals and become different from mm-hmm. what we are mm-hmm. so see who we are and how it created this problem. Mm-hmm. So really looking at what is, owning our own part of it, owning our own piece of it. And being able to put oneself in the multiple different points of view so you try and understand right. Hold different points of view, hold paradox, hold things systemically, hold the whole. So great, and and then probably if we then look at other dimensions like how would the rooms be organized, fresh air, good food, breaks, presence of the body, um, you'd probably say, oh, good information, right? If we spent half an hour, we could generate a list. And then the question I want to ask you is, imagine that we've generated that list of 30, 40 different qualities, the right information, the right room design, the right processes, all the things that people have just said. Um, where have all those been brought together? Where in our culture, let's just take our culture since I think most of us are North Americans here, where have all those been brought together systematically so that you could say, oh, let's take this tough decision we're having to this place where all of these have been brought together and where we can judiciously use the ones we need to make the best possible decision? Where? <laughs> uh, I appreciate your your civic pride. <laughs> uh, 
uh, seriously, where, where in our culture have we brought these together in a way that's where we brought together the state-of-the-art best practices from every dimension, brought them together because we said these decisions we have to make are so important, they deserve the best possible environment for... Where have we done that? Do you, do you notice the silence in the room? I've done this, had this focus group and now a number of times in a number of places around the, our country and around the world, and the common denominator is silence. The common denominator is silence. And then, so then my follow-up question to the silence then is, why? Why, if we have to make tough decisions? We know that. Everybody agrees about that. Republicans, Democrats, Obama, Obama's critics, Europeans, third world countries, climate change, people concerned about climate change, people concerned about health issues, people concerned about you know, human health and environmental health threats, and schools, children's prisons. Everybody agrees we've got tough decisions to make. Why haven't we created an environment that brings together what we already know that would allow us to make the best possible decisions? Why haven't we done that? Separation? Or do they actually want to make the best decisions? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if we're on that page yet. <laughs> oh, belief in scarcity? Marianne? Oh, yeah. I, I think we haven't yet reached the tipping point of our emergency, which will allow this new emergence to happen. We have not yet all felt it deeply enough to allow that to happen. Mm. Mm. Well, then I think, please come sit. Well, one of the things uh, that's moving through me then is I, yeah, I'm feeling that tipping point. Yeah, yeah, because it might be because of my life experience. It might be because of my age. It might be because of presence of cancer in those I love. It might be because of my prox- time I spent in Washington. I'm not sure, but I'm definitely feeling that because this, this is my passion now, right? I mean, my passion is to say, why haven't we done this? Um, let's do it. And what are the best practices? What are the best practices? And let's do a decision-making lab 1.0. You know, and we won't get it right. You know, but we'll do a reasonable. And then let's do. Then let's, then let's learn from what we do in it. Then let's do 2.0. And let's take the same attitude towards making tough decisions that we take towards things like the software in our computers, and just say let's let's keep improving it. Because having worked with Congress, what I'm struck by is we're we're not improving our software. We're not improving our software. In fact, we've got 435 people in the House of Representatives. That you started out with about 30 or 40 from 13 colonies who hang out together and have dinner together and drink together because you know, when, by the time you rode your horse or your buggy down, you, you hung out together then. You know? And we now have 435 who barely know each other and who are dealing with much more complicated decisions. And we're using the, the same software and saying, well, look at this. We've got a great constitution. We're a democracy. Let's do it the same way we've always done it. It's not working. It's not working. So you want to guide the conversation? You want well, me to... let's, let's go through the slides. Well, I think what Michael wants me to do before we open up for conversation is he wants me to share with you the journey I've recently been on because it's not just some thought I had, you know, last week in preparation of this talk. It's something I've been working on for a while. And I think he, let's walk through it because I'd like to show you where I've gone with it and then have a really fertile conversation uh, led by Michael, that, that sort of takes us see where we can take it a step further. Um, so, in addressing this question, uh, I, I then started asking myself, well, what are the domains of innovation 
if it's 2009 and we've got difficult problems, we also have a lot of assets that we didn't have 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, if you think about the last 20 years, I mean, in terms of brain research or in terms of what we know about f- group facilitation or information technology, I mean, been a lot of changes. What If you really did design it, if you had the, the money and the wherewithal to c- design a space, um, what domains of innovation would you have to draw from? So can we go to the next? So as I've looked into it, I, I came up listening to people like yourselves, listening with four domains of innovation. Uh, the, first, the first domain of innovation was, can you get the people in the world who know things about global issues? I'm going to talk global, but if you're thinking locally or nationally, just translate down. To, oh, could we go back to that main one, please? The main, the one, there we go. So the first domain was, could you get the human intelligence in the room that you needed? If you were talking about climate change or if you're talking about environmental health, or can you get the people with the policy or knowledge, the information, human beings? Then the second part was, can you, can you create a material or physical or technological space that's ideal for them to have a conversation? Because you all know that space can make a difference. And you, you, Do you want the space to look like a newsroom? Do you want the space to look like an airline cockpit? Do you want it to look like a... Uh, a control tower in an airport? Do you want it to look like a situation room in the White House? Do you want it to look like an operating room in a hospital? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the design of the space? It's also virtual. But. And then if you had really good intelligence and you had good infrastructure, physical infrastructure, it still is a question of how would you design and facilitate, how would you put it together? Because you've all been at meetings with smart people and you know, it wasn't a good meeting because it wasn't designed and facilitated very well, and the heart wasn't... All those things you were all talking about weren't present, the trust for collective intelligence and all the things you talked about. So that's where the design and facilitation comes in. And then the the last quadrant is, you know, you can have a wonderful experience together, but the decision-makers weren't in the room. So you can all get together in Bolinas or Esalen or, you know, Point Reyes or wherever you're going and have a wonderful, wonderful time but then you go, oh, but those people in Washington who are going to make the decision aren't listening, or those people in Sacramento or wherever those people are. So convening capacity, can you get influential people in the room? And I think the reason to go to Marion's thing about why, is, why do I feel the time is right is for the first time in my life, I felt that I had assets that could start this process. Because you know from all the work you've done, that if you, if you want something to happen but you have not a single asset, People look at you like, oh, that's a nice idea, but you don't have any assets. <laughs> so in quadrants one and four, I had some assets. And I'd like to just, maybe, why don't we just go to one and four, and I'll show you the assets that I brought together. So in quadrant one, Michael mentioned that I, I because I work for a think tank in New York, and it's based in New York and Brussels, I brought together um, with my colleagues the think tanks from around the world that say they're concerned about global policy issues. Because think about it, you know, you're, you're, you're working for a global policy institute in Beijing or Singapore or Mumbai or Addis Ababa, and you think you're thinking globally, but are you really thinking globally? And they all kind of, in their hearts, we all kind of know we're not, you know, because your money comes locally, your staff is local, you sit in a particular city in the world, so you're not really thinking globally. So we brought them all together and basically said, let's start thinking globally. They're very interested in that. There's now a list of 25, and some of them, like this one, are networks of 37 think tanks. So it's, it's not just 20, it's actually... So we have a network now 
of global policy think tanks, all of whom say they want to think globally, and who are one phone call away from pretty much any global policy specialist in the world. So can you go back to that previous? You're going to get really good at this by the time we're done, Jackie. No, the first, there we go. So in terms of that first quadrant, I feel we're, get, we're, we're in a position where we can say we have an asset. We're one phone call away from any serious person on global policy issues in the world. And they can be called by a local person, not by me, but by their Chinese or Indian or Afghan colleague. Um, in the fourth quadrant, I also feel I'm in a good position because between the East-West Institute and my UN colleagues and a couple of other institutions, if you really want, if we really want a foreign minister or a cabinet member or you can't get heads of states usually, but we can get high-level people. If we really want them there, if we have the right venue and the right framing and the right issue, we've had meetings with Secretary General of the UN. We've had meetings with foreign ministers, with Merkel, with Blair. If you really, really want them in the room, we can probably get them in the room. It takes scheduling time, and you've got to do a lot of bowing and scraping, but you can get them in the room. So now back to the master. So with the first and the fourth... um, (laughs) <laughs> with the first and the fourth, I felt, okay, so we have some assets. What's really missing? And what's really missing, I said, was, is what is, what is, how do we design it? And what is, the, what is the support? Because when you go to global issues, and you probably even find this with state issues or national issues, but with the globe, this human tendency, am I talking too much? No, no, this is perfect. Okay. This is perfect. The, the tendency to project which we all do. I mean, I project yeah. on my wife, and my wife projects on me, and you know, we all project on each yeah. other. But when you go global, this gets really disastrous because there's no feedback mechanism. If, if I project on Michael, and Michael doesn't like my projection, he says, Mark, hey, you know, stop it. Whereas when it's global, we can just project, you know, we can send our bombers there, and we can just project. So it's really important to have technical we, it's, it's important for us to be able to get feedback from the world pretty quickly, telling us, you know, you have your image of Afghanistan, but that image of Afghanistan doesn't square with what actually is in Afghanistan. So could you go to that quadrant for just a minute? Because I started asking the question, um, you know, who would help us, who could help us create an environment where if you were talking about Afghanistan, you could bring Afghanistan in the room? And this is the beginning of a list, which includes now Hewlett-Packard and Microsoft and a few others, of companies that have tools that basically people who do this kind of work can't afford. They either can't afford it or they don't know exists or they're stuck in their old mind patterns and they don't know. But the truth is we can go almost anywhere in the world now through video and through GOI. We can go anywhere in the world and we can see almost anything. Uh, And we have the capacity to bring it in the room if, if we dare if we dare. And this gets to your question about do we really want to, which I'm sure will come up in the conversation. Because there's something at risk here. <laughs> you know, just to, there's something at risk. I don't mean us, I meant the I know, I know. We meant them. I know, but <laughs> we'll come back to that too. <laughs> but anyway, without going, we can go into detail with this if you want, but suffice to say, all these companies or organizations have interest in the, in the Global Leadership Lab. All of them start with a parochial interest of wanting their particular tool and I could walk through all of them if you wanted. But they involve bringing people who aren't in the room into the room, bringing images of the world where you aren't sitting into the room. Um, and we could go through that more slowly. But that's suffice to say there's a beginning dialogue about how they would all contribute their technologies to this. 
which then leaves us with the design facilitation piece. So can you go to the other one that we've seen a couple of times? And I start asking the question then, it's all right, we can just keep going around. It's fun. Um, I started talking with people who say they have methods or tools for designing and facilitating to bring all these technical tools and human intelligence together in the most effective ways. And again, I could tell you about these various well, partners. But one thing we might mention is that the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School is uh, uh, one of the senior partners in that is Bill Urey, who wrote Getting to Yes. Some of you may know his book. And he and Mark have been partnering for many years, uh, along with Peter Goldmark, who uh, ran the Rockefeller Foundation for a decade and then became the editor of the International Herald Tribune and is now the head of the Climate Change Project at Environmental Defense. So one way to sort of understand at least one of the axes of Mark's work is, uh, is Bill Urey at uh, the Program on Negotiation at Harvard, Peter Goldmark, wherever he happens to be in the world, and uh, Mark have, have done a lot of this work in shared, uh, shared initiatives. Yeah, and I'll just, mention, I'll just mention IDEO since I spent yesterday afternoon with them. Yeah. This is a company that many of you probably know because it's based in Palo Alto in San Francisco. It's an award-winning design company that solves design problems. So it's, you know, helped create the mouse for the computer. And if you look at what IDEO does, it's, it's a pioneering design company that usually works on sm- what I would call relatively small technical problems, but sometimes works on other issues like you know, how hospitals work or how dialysis units in hospitals work. or they, they, they also look at systems and how systems can serve their customers better. And they've got a lot of young, very, very gifted designers there who would like to work on things like climate change or sustainability or uh, health or nuclear weapons. And, but nobody hires them to work on those problems. And so they're very interested as a company in working on the Global Leadership Lab and helping to design the lab. And there's a number of other people in the facilitation and design world who are also quite excited about this because they're frustrated that they see the way decisions are made. So this is, it kind of ends my summary. The reason I've talked so much in the beginning here was I, Michael wanted me to give a summary of the Global Leadership Lab idea. I've now done that, and I'm ready to kind of be quiet and, and listen some more um, or, or follow your, follow your lead. So actually, uh, there's a place that uh, I, I mentioned to Mark before we began today that uh, this past weekend, uh, mainstream moms, Megan and Felicity and others, uh, put on a really extraordinary two-day workshop uh, here at Commonweal on transition towns, which is a uh, movement. Uh, Megan, maybe you could describe it. It came out of Totnes, England. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a um, movement of communities uh, deciding to how to commit together to reducing carbon and building resilience. Right. And there's much within that. Right. And, and Mark was mentioning that, he, that that's also come to Boulder. Is mm-hmm. that correct? And, and it's, so I was really struck by this experience. Uh, how many people here were, were at that, just out of curiosity? So you can see there was uh, Megan and Felicity were both there. So uh, you can, it, what, you know, in 32 years of working here at Commonweal, there are certain moments that, take place that have energy. And this weekend had energy. And there was a sense, I don't know if it'll be realized, because as Mark says, one thing to have the weekend, it's another thing to see what the actual follow-up was. But I had a sense that 
as this is trying to seed itself all over the world. How many communities is it in now? Uh, there are 700 uh, on, sort of on track right. as transition initiatives. Right. So one way I, I think it's useful for us to think about this is at the community level because, as Mark is suggesting, this isn't just about, you know, the rich and powerful at the global leadership level. In fact, if we don't get it together at the community level all over the world, uh, it's not going to work. You know, the leaders will follow us if we demonstrate that we can get it together. And the common denominator is yeah. how does the community make decisions? Exactly. Is it using the best possible ways to shift the level of awareness, or is it using old habitual patterns that solve the problem at the same level of awareness and then just create the next, you know. So I'd like to, to focus, Mark, for a few minutes on, on how this translates at the grassroots level. For example, uh, um, uh, we do have in West Marin places that are reasonably inspiring to meet. You know, we, we have the, that. We do, in West Marin, have convening capacity among a set of organizations. Uh, We can get the key people into the room together. Uh, We can, with effort, though it's not as obvious, get all the right information in the room together. I say that's not as obvious because a lot of times you get idealistic people projecting wonderful ideas out, but with inadequate information and not you know, in a fully grounded way, which if you want to make change, you're going to need, I think. But I'd like to focus for just a moment on the technological intelligence piece of this, because you showed, uh, uh, Jackie, maybe we can go back to the slide that shows the technological intelligence. Are, Are some, I guess the question I'd like to ask is, are any of the systems that really work from your perspective on this affordable and particularly appropriate for local communities trying to capture a complex process and hold it uh, on a website in, you know, in other words, how can we bring together the relevant pieces of intelligence? And, And it's surely a question, Megan, that we should continue to dialogue about as we think about this, but I'm curious whether Mark has ideas about how one does that at the community level. I think the principles are the same. Mm-hmm. The principles are the same. I want to pick an issue, you know, like you want to do an issue that you want to talk about at the community level, and we'll, we'll, well use it Well, let's just take the, the, the climate change peak oil issue as a community issue that is a core aspect of transition towns. Well, let me tell you my experience with, with that issue, because yeah. I think that will be helpful. Yeah. Um, the first problem whether at a global community level, is that you, when you define the problem, you immediately attract some people and repel some others. In and the what? You attract some people yeah. and repel others. Yeah. And so from a systemic point of view, you'll end up with only part of the community. Because if you say climate change in peak oil, some people will get in their cars and drive to a place like this, and some people will read it and flip the page. And it's the people who read, read it and flipped the page who are also part of the community. Right. And so we had a meeting, just to go back to one of my experiences, uh, we had a meeting where we wanted to do just that. We wanted to get the climate change and the anti-climate change people together on a national level. And this was about five year, four or five years ago, and Al Gore was, hadn't come out with his movie yet, but 
had come out with his slideshow and was just starting to put his movie out, and they were taking out attack ads. Some of the right wing was taking out attack ads saying it was all lies and climate change wasn't a real threat. So we had a meeting. My colleagues, Joseph, Joseph McCormick and others in, in this transpartisan work that I've done, they said, how do we get this whole system together in America, the people who are concerned about climate change and the people who are trying to block it? And the first thing we learned was you, you can't call the meeting meeting on climate change. So it ended up being called a meeting on climate change and energy security, which is kind of where the peak oil comes in. But so it, and we found out that by calling it climate change and energy security, you could get Al Gore to come and you could get the people who took the attack ads against the movie to come. And by the time we were, Joseph was done with the invitation list, we had 30 people from pretty much across the spectrum all coming. And that's, I'd say, step one on the community level or on the national level or on the global level is can you get the whole system together? Because if you get the whole system together, at least my experience is this kind of stuff works better if you have the whole system together. It's kind of like if you have your whole body involved in a healing process, it'll work better than if you just have a part of your body. So if we had the whole body, and it was a very powerful three-day experience that changed Al Gore and changed the people who took out the attack ads. If either of them had not been there and it had been lopsided to one end of the spectrum or the other, we could have had a nice, you know, good meeting, but it wouldn't have had that level of awareness shifting. So the first principle I'd share for West Marin is are you convening it in such a way, if, it, if it's transition, are you, are you convening it in such a way so that you're not attracting part of the community and repelling another part that's going to come around and bite you in the... Because that's the way partisan politics works. You, you, somebody wins, the others gain their forces, and then they come back two or four years later and try to grab back what was taken from them. And you careen from right to left, which is okay if there's no crisis, you know, if there's no nature, if there's no environment, if, if you can keep squandering resources and squandering money and squandering trust and keep careening around. But, so that's my first thought is can you define the issue that you're bringing people together on in a way that really lets the whole community come together so that when they sit and look around the room, they go, oh, my gosh, the whole community's here. The whole community's here. And that's, I'm sure, why you've been successful, because you're learning how to bring the whole community together. I think we fell short on bringing the whole community in. We had a, we were, yeah, we, but it has a whole... disaster preparedness and economic security. <laughs> right. And, and defense. Don't, I don't like it. Right. Right. Good room. Right. I don't shed. And a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and good food. Good food. Always good. Always the food. <laughs> so, uh, um, you are understandably, um, in the view of many, regarded as um, a very, very skilled facilitator. You've worked with Arab Israeli conflicts, uh, 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 all kinds of, uh, uh, as you mentioned, the Congress and so forth. We often hear the principles of good facilitation, but what is your felt experience of what is at the core of good facilitation for a process like this? Like this? Are we talking back about West Marin or, or? Well, I'm assuming you say that these same principles, principles hold apply. at all these different levels. Yeah, but I, I'm just, it just helps to bring it to ground. If okay, I'm let's ground it in West Marin. Yeah, so, well, so the, the framing of why you're bringing people together is key. And then in addition to the framing, um, who does the letter come from? Mm-hmm. Um, so my work with Congress was a case in point. When Rachel and I did the work with Congress, the people who hired me to design and facilitate the retreat was a committee formed of half Democrats and half Republicans, 
five and five, and each party had picked a diverse group of Democrats and a group of five. So my client, which is why I was excited in 1996 when I was hired, was a Democratic-Republican committee of the House of Representatives. I felt, okay, now that's a convener that I can actually maybe get from here to there with. I'm often asked to be, I'm often hired by somebody or want to be hired by somebody, and you go, sorry, I can't, can't accept your assignment until you find somebody else who together you'll, together you'll, you'll ask me to facilitate. If the two or three of you will ask me to facilitate, I'll, I'll accept. But you alone, I, I can't accept because I'm disqualified from the beginning. So that's the other thing is who is the convener? Have you framed? How have you framed the issue? And then, then who is convening it? So you can say, the, ideally, the convening group has one person that any stakeholder in the system will trust. That's the principle. You look at the list of conveners, you say, oh, I trust that person, so I'll come to the meeting. If you don't see anybody on the convening list, you might still go, but why are you going? Probably because you want to sabotage it, um, either consciously or unconsciously. So that convening group, the framing of the issue, or I would say, are, are two, two key steps that, that make for... And this is all ready before you've begun facilitating the meeting. You haven't even had the meeting yet. Um, and then just another sound principle is if you do not know the system well yourself personally. So if you know West Marin and you know everybody, including the, those guys you were referring to, the defense preparedness and those guys... Um, maybe you don't need to do check-in with interviews, but if you don't know the system well, it's very useful before you have the meeting to call a microcosm of the system and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I see you're coming to me. I'm really delighted. Can we have a chat, or can I get together for lunch, or can we talk for, on the phone for a few minutes? Ask them questions like, what would make, um, why are you coming, and what would make this meeting really successful for you? Um, I really appreciate you taking this time to come to the meeting. If you were to leave at 5 o'clock on the last day, what would make this meeting really worth your time and have people tell you. So before you're designing your agenda for the meeting and how you're going to run it, you've asked a microcosm of the system what they want from the gathering. And that can be very helpful. It's time-consuming, but it's, if you don't know the system, it's a useful thing to do. So again, these are all things before you're actually sitting in the room like we are. I have a lot of feelings about what happens when you're sitting in the room, but I'm stressing the pre-meeting part because... Uh, I just don't even go to meetings anymore where the pre-meeting part hasn't been done well. And I've worked with colleagues who are really skillful at now at bringing together whole systems. And that's, that's what I find most exciting. I call it whole system, whole system mediation or whole system conflict resolution. And, and, that's, and the act, that, and I don't want to jump over that, that defining the whole system is absolutely key. And very, it's very hard to do. Because if you think about it, if you're involved in a system, can you see the whole system? You know, it really takes a lot of self-discipline and reflection. All the things you were, all of you were saying at the beginning of the hour, inner work and awareness. And if you don't do that, you say, oh, we're going to convene the system. And then you notice, oh, we forgot about so-and-so. Or we didn't include them because they caused too much trouble. Or because they don't speak English. Or because, you know, they didn't have the money to get there. Or, you know, and then suddenly, oh, they were part of the system. And... And it's very hard, too, because as, as any of you know, life is one and everything's connected. So you can say, well, the system can expand exponentially. Everything connects to everything else. So pretty soon you have 9,000 people in the room. You can't, can't have 9,000 people in the room. So you've got to define the system in a way that's workable. And, and, and obviously that relates to the way you've framed, framed the issue. So in the case of the study that I mentioned, energy security and climate change, is that the whole system? No, but it was a good chunk of the system that was a manageable thing that you could move and I'll just tell you what was closed by saying what was gratifying about it was that I feel 
that meeting and a couple of others we did where we had the Christian coalition and a lot of the evangelical groups there, I think that series of meetings we did played a role in the shift that's happened over the last 10 years on climate change, which is we had a divided country eight, nine, ten years ago. Radically divided country about climate change. We don't have a divided country about it anymore. We have a divided country about what to do about it. But we don't have a divided country about whether it exists and whether it's a threat, whether it's a serious threat. Ten years. It's not bad for 330 million people to move this much, you know. The problem is we've got to move a lot faster and more coherently and more unified than we, than we are. But, but at least that's, let's look at the good, good part. And I think that has to do in part with some skillful bringing together of the whole systems that made a difference. So you've done a great job of, of outlining the things that need to happen before you get into the room right. for a whole systems meeting to work. Right. And again, we've got a lot of people in the room who've thought a lot about group facilitation in one form or another. But again, from your felt experience with the, what happens in the meeting, what are the core principles that you work with in the meeting? Well, I'll, I'll be glad to answer your question, but I'll remind you that when I asked you a question yesterday, I said, how do people who are told that they have cancer, how do they want to receive information? Mm-hmm. And that what's the best practice for how to tell somebody mm-hmm. you have cancer and here's what you need to do about it? You said, well, Mark, I can't give you an answer because every person's different. Right. So I need to say that that some of the things I'm about to say, which include things that many of you said at the beginning of the hour, there are certain groups you wouldn't do those things for. Right. You know, like, just to pick, take one that Rachel had, which is silence. You have a bunch of Congress people in the room, and you say, now we're going to have five minutes of silence? <laughs> They're just bouncing off the walls, you know. You've got to give them something to do, you know. Now, they can be silent while they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And so you can say, could you each take a couple of minutes and... You know, Check your blackberries and silence. <laughs> <laughs> you could do that, uh, uh, particularly with their role model, Obama, with his blackberry yeah. carefully in his pocket. But, um, but uh, you know, you'd say, uh, before you answer the question, take a few minutes and make some notes, and then we'll start in three minutes. So if they've got an assignment and they can make some notes, they'll be quiet. But you could never say, let's, like, meditate or, you know, be silent or commune with the fairies, you know. You, you, uh, <laughs> so... Um, so I'll still go ahead and answer your question, but I just need to say it depends on who's in the yeah. room. And I think, to me, one of the key principles of facilitation is have a plan, but don't take it too seriously. Because people react to having, you're having a plan. And um, um, they need, you need to, almost everybody of any significance wants to see an agenda when they come to a meeting. Please send the agenda and the list of participants, they will say, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to have the agenda. And you have to have taken it seriously enough to make it good enough to get the people in the room. And if worse came to worst, you might actually use the agenda that you wrote before the meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've never facilitated an outstanding meeting in which the agenda was followed. Never. Because if it's been followed to the T, and I or I and a colleague wrote it before the meeting, from my perspective, it means nothing happened at the meeting. Nothing, the level never shifted. Can you put Einstein back up there so he can bless us again? Um, it, it means that nothing, the level of awareness, because if I could write the agenda beforehand from my level of awareness and, and it carries through for the next two days and it all happened like I planned, and I have friends who run very, very big successful organizations who say, Mark, I never have a meeting, I never call a meeting unless I know the outcome I want 
before it starts. And they're very successful. They were working in Washington and they do good work. But in terms of shifting the level of awareness, I'd go with exactly the opposite premise, which is can you hold the intention of the agenda and then have your heart and spirit really open to what manifests in the room? And you can usually, my rule of thumb is like if I'm doing a day and a half, let's say, or a day and a half or two and a half day retreat, the first 12 or 24 hours, I'll take the agenda pretty seriously and ask people to follow it. And after the first, let's say, third or quarter, you've got to start listening. I mean, you've got to start listening. But you really have to listen because something is calling to be born. Something is calling to happen. And you really... And this is where... I just wanted to be a little more vulnerable about this. This is where collaboration gets tricky because if I'm facilitating alone, I can listen to my own heart and adjust accordingly. But what if Michael and I are facilitating together and we have an agreement then I can't just listen to my own heart. I've got to listen to my own heart and say, oh, Michael, listen, I listen to my heart. Can we change this in the agenda? And then, so that means there has to be a communication loop between Michael and I. We have to agree to change it. And if we've got a committee, right, then we've got to not only talk with the other, but we've got to check with our committee. And you can see the problem. Because the higher the stakes of the meeting, the more bureaucratic it gets, the more justification there is to not change a single thing in the agenda because the process of changing it is too challenging and so then people say oh well we better stick with our agenda even though what's happening in the room and this is why I tend to prefer off-site track to retreat type settings because when I facilitate something like I did for the Chinese Communist Party and the Democratic Republican Party I pulled a couple of surprises during our but it was very hard and there were some nervous people and and I did it you know when we go to Beijing in June and have the equivalent meetings in China, it's going to be really hard to start saying, to saying, to letting anything spontaneous happen. And, and unless something, this, the words you guys all used was authentic, spontaneous, you know, collective intelligence, all those words you used, that means something's actually happening, and, and most of those track one events are scripted, so that nothing actually happens at the meeting. It's all happened in previous conversations level or two down, and, and this is why it's so tragic, because all those things you talked about, whole selves, all the... I mean, you, the tape has a recording of all the things you said, which were beautiful, and I agreed with all of them, and most of them are systematically excluded from government-to-government meetings, systematically excluded from intergovernmental meetings. And that's where so many of the challenging decisions are made. So the real challenge is how do you get these innovative methods of facilitation, how do we get them to penetrate the higher, you know, higher levels of power? Albie, you had your hand up. You want to see? Um, I've noticed... Uh, Mark, that the idea of sitting down with people and spending a certain amount of time and then saying, you know, what is no, non-negotiable for you uh, is, a, is an item that seems to allow further movement, uh, seems to lower the tension between the individuals in the mediation effort. How, what's your experience with it? Yeah. I mean, the way Bill and I often will say it is, what is the thing you're saying yes to that you know no one's going to change? That, that, that your core value or a core principle or a core demand, I don't tend to use the word demand, but a core value or core concern that you know you're going to leave here with, and you'd like everybody to know about that. And that can be a very effective thing that people sort of say. But I, I don't do it around positions, though. I, I do it around values, because if you have them say that about their positions... 
then there's a, they attach their pride to their position. So what we do tend to say is what is the core value that you're bringing into this that you know is a core value and it's going to not change during the course of this meeting. And we're going to go around and let everybody say what is that core value. And we just did that actually at an event in Denver where we had one-third Democrats, one-third independents, and one-third Republicans. And we had a room of you know, a couple hundred people who said that, put all the values out, and the first thing they noticed was, oh, there's not a single value that's been spoken here that I, I'm, not, I'm uncomfortable with that core value. Now, it's a question of what happens when the values you know, collide and you have to make choices or decisions. But it's a very comforting thing. And, of course, if somebody said, you know, racial superiority is my core value, we would have had a problem. But nobody in that room said racial superiority. But it's a wonderful way of doing a CAT scan or a value scan of the room and going, oh, okay, I can, so far, so good, you know, so far, so good. But you go past values, that's when you need to start using a different, you, you, that's when you're going to start getting some conflict. So I'd like to go back, Mark, to, uh, uh, Mark's done a, an outline that I've looked at called the Global Leadership Laboratory Concept Overview. Um, and... I'd really like to sort of focus in on this for a few minutes because I think it's quite remarkable. Um, Mark says the Global Leadership Lab plans to focus on the global dimension of problems for four reasons. One is that they're very complex. The second is that, uh, that, that if you make progress on global issues, it creates value for the largest number of people. Uh, and then... Uh, if multiple countries are involved in this breakthrough thing, it will ensure transnational problem-solving and so on. And he says, the Global Leadership Lab cannot create a new decision-making software overnight, but it can become a process for discovering what is humanly possible. Uh, And so Mark is envisioning actually creating an environment in which decision-makers' capabilities are optimized. So he says, consider the renowned Situation Room in the White House. You know, uh, until its renovation last year, this windowless bunker, supposedly the gold standard regarding the high-level strategic decision-making environment where crisis decisions are made, was neither pleasing nor efficient. Henry Kissinger called it uncomfortable, inesthetic, and essentially oppressive. And it was also backward technologically. So the New York Times called it a low-tech dungeon that did not include any of the cutting-edge technologies that are part of the design for the Global Leadership Lab. By contrast, DreamWorks, the motion picture company, has developed in partnership with Hewlett-Packard methods for enhancing virtual collaboration and creativity in ways that most governments, international, intergovernmental agencies, and leading non-governmental organizations do not have. Um, so... Let me, let me, can I just stop you on that one? Yeah, right. Because I love what you're doing. Let yeah. me just stop you because it's... Because I, I don't get to let out my anger very much, yeah, yeah. and this is a nice chance yeah, yeah. to get angry. <laughs> Rachel says I'm not good with my anger, so... So it really, it really infuriates me the way we've set things up as a culture because DreamWorks, DreamWorks wants its people to be able to work virtually on movies together so they can make better movies at lower cost so they don't have to fly so much. So they partner with Hewlett-Packard and they design this system called Halo which lets people work together virtually in a seamless way. It costs a fortune. You know, I think it costs a couple hundred thousand dollars and you've got to... 
but to make movies, they, they can afford that. Now, you start talking to anybody at the UN or anybody at East West Institute or people dealing with AIDS or Darfur or whatever, and you even mention the possibility of bringing together people virtually, which is extremely important in war situations. You know, extremely important to be able to bring people virtually south and north Sudan to be able to bring them together and have a conversation with them and get people through. You could do that with Halo technology, but the immediate thing is we can't afford it. We can't afford it. And so what, what, this is what pisses me off is that you've got people working in the most, the most difficult situations with their hands tied behind their backs, technologically and otherwise. And then you've got people working on, I mean, I like good movies, and I, you know, I like a lot, I mean, I'm not against DreamWorks having it. It's just we've separated things into private and public sector, and the public sector is, is backward. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. This public sector is backward. And the private sector has the resources, the tools, and the methods, and it's applying it to, you know, relatively small and relatively insignificant problems. I mean, I'm relatively, you know, I mean, the kind of car you drive and the way the console's built and the way the gear shift works, those are important things. But, you know, so are AIDS and climate change and, and war and peace, you know. And it's this, it's this, it's what pisses me off is the injustice. And it's not because we're bad people, but we've created a financial system called private sector and public sector in which the public sector is diminished uh, and, and works with its hands tied behind its back. And, and uh, I'll never forget, I, I did some consulting briefly for a reason I can tell you about with Altria, the owner of Philip Morris and the tobacco companies. And I was there at their state-of-the-art you know, conference center in Virginia, the heart of tobacco country, and it was like the best of everything. And then I went straight on the train to Washington to do some work with Congress. And I was back, remember those metal things where they flip charts and the flip chart would fall off of it, you know? <laughs> That's what we had in the congressional meeting rooms. It was, I'm, I'm going to go, when I, I went from the 21st century at the tobacco companies back to the 19th century with Congress. And I just said, you know, this is crazy. This is crazy. So thank you for letting me express my anger. That. What would it take to get over that hump? And is anyone uh, working on that particular, is there any group that's addressing that issue to imagine and figure out what it would take to get over it and then start the process to do it. Well, you get more of this anger if you're not careful. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe take a couple other questions and let's see what the pattern is and then I'll... Yeah, let's both... both you, you yes. uh, historically, it's always been the artists that have shown the masses... Yeah where the window is. And so instead of being angered that Pixar or that that they have figured out how to do this, I think maybe what needs to happen is we need to go, wow, thank you for the solution. Now let's take the money from the tanks and create Halo. Because it is only in the private sector, or i.e. the artist that has the creative freedom, that is ever going to actually embody what Einstein is saying here, which is, look for the window where you don't think you're going to find it. I agree. One one more comment. The question I have is, I watch, um, I live on the internet a lot, and, and Twitter is a new kind of thing that is catching on on the internet is 140 character tweets that you make and then somebody invented this thing called a hashtag hash mark and some words and so then along comes for example the attack in Mumbai and and the (coughs) hashtag Mumbai is the fastest way to find out what's going on in Mumbai well the other day 
yesterday a Prop 8 um, debate in front of the Supreme Court in California, and there were about eight different hashtags on Twitter that you could follow. Prop 8 was one of them. You could follow another one called Protect the Family, and it reminded me of your sense of getting the people in the room. You know, people self-organized into these, and then you had people coming from the from one hashtag to tell people in the other hashtag what was going on. You know, if, if you watch that hashtag, you, they just said this. And so this mm -hmm. kind of mediation occurs. This is really low-tech text stuff with a link to a page someplace. But it's taken off, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, Ed Williams is the guy that put this together. He's at the White House on Monday in the economic thing and asking us, what do you want to tell the White House? You know, what do you want to tell these guys? I said, keep it down to 140 characters, would be mm -hmm. my advice. But um, what is the impact of that? I mean, it's not so high-tech as the HALO system, but it certainly draws people into these sort of crowdsourced you know, conversations. Is that a big deal, do you think, in terms of that? Is it, is it as simple as, as letting people grow up with this technology? Or does it have to be really expensive to do this? Okay, well, there's a lot of questions out there. Can I dive in and yeah. just swim around in it? Um, well, it doesn't have to be expensive, um, but um, but it's not free. And this thing about tanks, just this this is the we have the money to do this. We have the money to improve our public sector functioning. We have the money to give every community a, a, a space in which to have conversations. Um, but we're misusing our resources, um, and I'm going to. Just tell you the facts. We have the, th the largest battle fleet in the world. It's bigger than the next 13 battle fleets combined. Eleven of those battle fleets are our allies. So we're basically investing hundreds of millions of dollars in battle fleets to fight against no existing possible enemies. And it's continuing under Obama. It will only continue because of this because of the systems that have been put in place, the same reason you're going to go through the same, our children are going to go through the same security things at the airport, even after they start, probably start attacking trains or oil refineries, they'll, you know, because systems get put in place, which is why this is so urgent. This, we have the resources to, to bring the public sector processes up to par, but I don't see a recognition uh, of the urgency of this, and I think I don't see it because we don't have a prototype to use an IDEO and design industry language. If right now I could walk you, and I, I'll tell you the building one down there that is undeveloped building that's on this land, I walked by it this morning, I thought, if it weren't so close to the edge, boy, I'd say to Michael, let's build a global leadership lab right there, because it's a space, it's a shell, ready to be, if we had a prototype that you could take people to, you know, and people would go, because see, Twitter exists. And you can talk to us about it, and if anybody in this room, if they're really interested, they can go to Twitter, and they can go do their 140 characters, and they can see what that hash thing is about. And that's true for your iPod, too. I mean, look at the way that an iPod just swept the culture. I, nobody had an iPod X number of years ago, and now everywhere you go in the world, there's somebody with a little thing in their pocket, you know? Why? Because somebody built the prototype, and he said, oh, I, I want one of those. So the reason I'm... I'm going to synthesize your questions and go to the, the leadership lab, is I, I've said, finally said to myself, we need a prototype. The cancer self-help program exists. It's existed for 20 years, and people would say, oh, go check that out. It exists. And once something exists, 
then it can enter the flow and it can expand or contract or modify and change and get into 2.0 and 3.0. And people can go to Commonweal and say, oh, we're going to do ours a little differently. And something modifies and it shifts. Why? Because somebody starts a prototype. And, and that's what's missing right now is a prototype. That's why the silence in the room. I would like in two or three years for there to be rooms where there's not silence at that moment and where somebody raised their hand and said, oh, I, did, I went there and I did this and that really worked. And it doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, you don't need to have the halo system in your room. You might be useful in the sedan where you can't cross certain lines of battle and so forth, but we do need to invest resources in looking at the process by which we make decisions. And that means, and this is going to be a sort of a spiritual coda here, if we're too attached to our side winning and we still think it's about our side winning, then we're not really going to be interested in the process. We're going to be interested in how we win. And I'm all for the good guys winning and the bad guys losing, uh, but not if our identities are so wrapped up in that that we can't see, oh my God, the process is broken. And so this time we won the election, last time we, we, we lost, but the process is broken. The process needs to shift to another level. And you, we're all going to be very, very sad in 6 to 12 months if we see Barack Obama mired in the same crap that Clinton was mired in, the same crap that Bush was mired if we see him mired in that, I'm hoping maybe this will be the, thing, the, the, the clarion call that Marion was saying hadn't come yet, which was saying, wait a minute, this is a good man with a good movement, good intentions, and look what's happening. It must not be about whether the guy's a good person or not. It must be something else. What is it? Well, it's the process by which we make decisions and the level of awareness that Marion... Is it being made visible to the investors of the world the possibility of investing in process-oriented equipment? Mm-hmm. Where is that that made visible? Mm-hmm. Because if it was made visible and they understood the leverage of doing that, right. this would be great. Well, I'm, I'm hoping to create a, a, a package that can be invested in, but to, to, to put the package together requires getting a significant number of people, including the chief technology officer at Hewlett-Packard. And I want to go back to that point. Who raised the point about the artist? Yeah, I just want to say, I, I completely agree with you. And so my approach, as soon as I found about DreamWorks and Hewlett-Packard, is I called Mark Gerzinski, who's the, who's the chief technology officer at Hewlett-Packard. I s- sent him the same document that Michael is reading from. I said, are you interested in talking? 24 hours, came back with a very powerful personal letter about how interested he was in this and how he'd like to be part of it. So that means we're trying to get Hewlett-Packard to say, oh, we want to be a partner in building this. We, and we want to contribute our technology to, the, to solving these global problems. So we're trying to get the artist, you know, or with the, the, the two artist's tools, but this is where he is, donated, but donated to what? And, and then just to really bring people into the dilemma, I'm trying that with my own resources as an American to do this. And so far, I've brought a lot of Americans into this process, and, and nobody's criticized this yet, but if you looked at all those logos and organizations, most of them are American. So how far can you go as a group of Americans building a global leadership lab before you've just shot yourself in the foot? So I would like to start a similar process in Asia with my Chinese colleagues and a similar process in Europe and have three processes emerging and then bring them together. So when people say, well, who started this and where did it start from? They don't say Mark Gerson and 
you know, Michael Lerner, or, you know, they, they say, oh, there was a group in the U.S., there's a group in China, and there's a group in Europe, and they came together. And in other words, the design to getting this to the point where someone can invest in it to go to Marion's point requires a lot of creative, creative work and careful design work because nobody knows how to build things that are global. Um, the iPod is not global. The iPod is an artifact from a particular culture that spreads globally. So what we're trying to do is create a lab, that a prototype, that when someone sees it, they don't say it's an American invention, which is why I'm resisting some of my colleagues' desires to find a warehouse in Washington and create a, a lab. Because while that would be a great domestic effort, and I hope that that's one of the things that grows out of this, I don't want to put the years and energies that I have into just creating the one in Washington. I want one in, in, in North America, one in China, and one in Europe. That's what I want. And I'd like to see a space that has a virtual portfolio of things that can spread out and go elsewhere and, and move around, but that there's a home base in Europe and Asia and the U.S. And then I'd feel like, okay, nobody's going to say it's you know, just an American thing or in Washington or look, oh, the Americans invented something new. That's not the right tone for this. And that's an, ex- that's an expensive and challenging design process. It's, uh, I want to create that investment opportunity, but I've, first I've got to put together the, the, the entity. And, and there's a lot of naysayers, um, a lot of naysayers who would say, well, exactly how is this different from the meeting we went to at, you know, Early House or Esalen or, you know, you know well, and, and, then, and how can I prove it? I can't prove it the way Twitter can prove that Twitter exists or that Commonweal has a self-help. I can't prove it. I can just tell stories about things I've done and other people have done. And, and, and I do feel that, I'll just close with this saying, that I feel that getting these corporate sector partners, while not the essence of the project, will give a certain credibility because there's a certain kind of, and I'll be a little judgmental here, left brain males who'll be very impressed by the, by the bells and whistles and they'll accept some of the softer and more feminine things that were said at the beginning of this hour if we have some of the bells and whistles there too. We've got to satisfy the male left brain policy uh, mind. We've got to hook that mind into this process in 10 to 20 years. If we don't hook that mind into this process, we'll just be off, as a friend of mine says, playing a symphony on the edges of disaster. Sure. Eric, you had a comment. Yeah, um, I've been listening, and as if maybe in a historical perspective, um, we're trying to uh, avoid solving problems at the same level of awareness. And in the context of everything described about the global decision-making laboratory, I just keep thinking back to... What about the United Nations? Was that not a prototype for exactly what we're discussing? And why did that not work? And why do you think that creating a global decision-making laboratory now will somehow not become a, a, an institution that gets bogged down mm-hmm. um, in the same, the same way? The Very good way. question. Could you go back to the opening PowerPoint? You notice what it says up there underneath global decision-making laboratory? So here Council 2.0, and, and that's because... Um, you've been reading my mind over there, Eric. Um, my private sort of term for this project is Security Council 2.0 because the UN is governed by the Security Council fundamentally. And the Security Council was formed in late 1940s. It's now 2009. That's 60 years. We're still at Security Council 1.0. And my original dream for doing the Global Consortium of Think Tanks in this was to say, how do we get to Security Council 2.0? And 
this is a subject I've looked at very, very closely, and you have your finger on something very important, which is the Global Leadership Lab is established the way the UN was established. It will self-obsolesce itself. And so, number one, it's not a track one. I don't imagine that this, the Global Leadership Lab is a track one institution. It's not about governments getting together and creating an intergovernmental one, although they're welcome to copy what we do on a track two level if they like it. But So number one, it's track two, it's, it's, it's not governmental, it's, it's sub-governmental, which means you don't have to play by government rules. You can actually be creative. It's almost, my friends at IDEO call it skunk works, skunk works, where you can do new ideas and then make that phone call to the foreign minister or the secretary of state and say, we'd like to introduce you to this, what's happened here. Or you have the number two person at the State Department or the number four person. So number one, it's a track two. The other thing about the UN is that who can name the five members of the Security Council? Can anybody name the five members of the Security Council? United States, Russia, China, England, and France. UK and France. Very well done. Now, who can name the five largest arm dealers? United States. <laughs> Russia, China, England, France. Okay, so, you know, we have a problem here. Um, and the countries that think that they should be part of the Security Council many of whom are part of our think tank network, India, uh, Brazil, um, you know, Iran. I mean, who, who said they weren't part of it? And why should we be living 60 years later with... So it was, go back to Eric's point, it's, the structure, Eric, was, was obsolete. It, was, it, it became obsolete over the course of these 60 years. But every effort to change the composition and functioning of the Security Council is met with resistance from the vested interests of the governments who, who want to keep it the way it is. So China will veto so-and-so, and, and you know, Argentina will veto Brazil, and nobody can change it because it's a governmental structure that got stuck in time. And, and I, for a while, thought I was going to try to work on that, changing that, and I realized, no, you have to drop down below track one. This goes to your artist point. The, the home for the artists in the policy world is called track two, or citizen diplomacy. That's where the artist and the policy world come together. And that's, I think you're absolutely right, that's the frontier. And, and the, 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 you know, the pure artist says, oh, the heck with politics, I'm not getting involved. The true policy wonk gets caught up in that world where we want to be is on that frontier of innovation. I think that's where Einstein's challenge to us will be. Amen. Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to, uh, we're going to come toward the close of this and then uh, uh, we'll be welcome to stick around for a while and, and talk with Mark individually. But... Um, one thing that we haven't really looked at, we've talked about decision-making as if consciousness matters. And we haven't really uh, talked about what you mean by consciousness. Um, I know that you and Rachel have a teacher in Brazil that you've been working with for many years. Um, I know that you have reflected on the nature of consciousness. I know that John Mack, who was a professor of psychiatry at Harvard, was on your board for many years before his death. So it's not as if you haven't thought about consciousness. So I guess the, the personal question I'd like to ask you is, um, as you do this work, um, what is your understanding of the true nature of consciousness and how far... You talked about what is humanly possible. What do you think is humanly possible in terms of consciousness? Where do you think we can go based on your understanding of what 
the true nature of consciousness is. This is a good moment for one of those moments of silence, right? Michael's invited us to drop a level. Well, what's coming up for me is uh, some colleagues who were writing a book on meditation in action asked me to talk about with them about meditation and politics. And at first I, I didn't know what to say, but they were interviewing me. Can you speak up a little bit? Oh, sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going in. Um, <laughs> um, well, I'll just cut to the chase and say, I'm, I'm not a spiritual teacher or, or even a tremendously spiritually oriented person, so I, I, I won't speak with any great... I'm not on the frontiers of spiritual wisdom. But from the trenches, what I've seen about pure consciousness is that it's that, it's that place before or beyond attachment. And that means primarily attachment to identity. And politics is about attachment. Politics is, is the world of attachment. And spirit is the world of non-attachment or beyond attachment. And so to be a, involved on the frontier or the, or the, of spiritual politics or spiritual activism to me means where those two paradoxical statements collide. The world of ultimate attachment, which is hardcore politics, or even war, where you're, in politics you're not risking your life or taking other lives, in war you're literally risking yours or taking others. So that's a pretty high level of attachment. I sometimes say people are more willing to risk their lives and their identities. They're, they're more willing to risk their life than their identity. That's how precious our identities are to us. So I guess for me, decision-making as if consciousness matters means decision-making as if the world beyond attachment matters. And it's very, very, very hard to get people in a political world to go beyond attachment. If you go to Black Rock, is that what it's called? Or Spirit Rock. Spirit Rock or, you know, people go on meditation retreats where everybody's dedicated. That's the, the antithesis of that is Capitol Hill, where nobody's gone to Capitol Hill to go beyond attachment. They've gone to push their attachment, get enough votes for their attachment, and get their attachment funded. Right? <laughs> And, and, and so I used to go back and forth from Boulder to Washington, and you go from the world of you know, spiritual seeking and Buddhist teachers and non-attachment, get on a plane, fly for three hours, land in Capitol Hill, and world of attachment. And I, I, so I, I did that for five or six years, and I guess it's, I said, well, those are the two faces of human, those are the two ends or the two poles of human consciousness, attachment and non-attachment. And I said, well, the first thing is that it's not about them, it's about us. I've got those two worlds inside me. I've got a world of attachment inside me, and I've got a world of non-attachment inside me. On, there's a part of me that's extremely attached to this vehicle, and there's another part of me that's not extremely attached to this vehicle. And they're both there coinciding. You know? So I've got a politician in me, and I've got a spiritual seeker in me. And they must fit together because I've only got one body. But in our culture, for years, I would, Michael, I would, I'd go to meetings and I'd go... Why am I not really comfortable at this meeting? Oh, it's a political meeting, so my spiritual self doesn't feel comfortable. Then I go to other meetings, and I go, oh, why am I not comfortable here? I go, oh, well, my spiritual self is fully welcome here, but 
my political self isn't. And I kept thinking, well, why can't I want to go to a place or a meeting or a process where all of me is welcome? You know, all. The, and that's to me what you and this work here at Commonweal and this process that you've helped initiate, and that's really kind of my life's work is where, how do those two things fit together in me and in, in our culture? And, and it's bringing, it's, it's, that's the ultimate divide, I would say, between the world of non-attachment and the world of attachment. And I certainly haven't uh, integrated it fully, but, but insofar as I understand what, what pure consciousness is, it's, it's being true. That's maybe the real tragic gap, <laughs> you know, that we're all caught in, which is, you know, we're, we're yeah, we're all suspended between, between those poles, you know. Mark Grizan, thank you for being with us at the New School. Pleasure. Thank you all for coming.